step right up and gather around. Tall folks, kindly at the back, please. I am Professor Gruntsplatter, and I'm the curator of this here spookatorium. Through these doors are wonders and horrors, maybe even a laugh or two. From the dark corners on every street today, all back through recorded time. You'll hear music and tales of the unknown, mysterious, and perhaps even diabolical. That's right, folks. There are strange things beyond this threshold. But if you weren't curious, you wouldn't be here. So, will you take a chance and come on in? Or will you saddle up to the concession stand and always wonder what you may have missed? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Professor Gruntsplatter's Spookatorium. There will be no refunds once you enter. Thank you for your attention, and the brave ones come with me. Baby, it's cool to see 
Greetings. Welcome to the show. I'm your humble host, Professor Gruntsplatter. If you're wondering why this is episode 27 and not episode 1, it is because the show originally ran from September of 2006 to October of 2008, and then it went into hibernation until it occurred to me that the five-year anniversary of when I started doing this was approaching, and I decided to reanimate it. Uh, All of the original episodes are available in the archive at spookatorium.org. The first 14 episodes were really just music. Uh, Starting with episode 15, I began incorporating stories about eccentrics, odd history, cryptozoology, the paranormal, and and all of that kind of thing. Uh, That will continue in this new incarnation, but to that I'll be looking at the supernatural horror and weird tales coming out of the small press world. So if you're a fan of uh, writers like H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Ambrose Bierce, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, uh, and so on, uh, hopefully this new incarnation of the show will expose you to some fantastic writers and stories that are working below the mainstream radar. Um, that's where much of my attention fell uh, in the time since the last episode, and it continues to be something that... Um, I just really get a lot out of. Um, So it's good to be back. Uh, My intention is to post uh, new shows on the 23rd of each month. And in between episodes, I'm sure there will be some bits and pieces posted to the site uh, at spookatorium.org. Gather round and hear treatments and tales of the medicine wagon and the spookatorium's rolling apothecary. Cotard syndrome is a rare psychological affliction that bends the reality of those affected into believing that they're dead, that they're rotting, uh, that they're missing organs, or that they simply don't exist. Uh, French neurologist Jules Cotard first coined the diagnosis in 1880, describing it as a negation delirium. Uh, The symptoms occur primarily among those living with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Uh, Cotard suggested the origins lie with a disconnect in the brain in the areas that associate emotion with recognition, uh, believing that if the person was not recognized by someone that they would expect to, uh, it could lead them toward a reality where they really don't exist, that they've died or they aren't able to be seen or are in some way physically incomplete. In his initial introduction of the syndrome, Cotter relayed the story of a young woman who was diagnosed late. Uh, she had come to his attention denying several of her body parts uh, that she needed to eat, and she held the belief that she was damned and could not die of natural causes. Her convictions in this were so strong that she ultimately did die of starvation. Uh, to this point, electroconvulsive therapy has shown to have some promise, but there's ongoing research regarding dialectical behavior therapy and other talking therapy approaches as it is seen as an issue of perception and intellectual state more so than one of biological imbalances.
That was Celtic Frost with Morbid Tales, as if I need to tell you that. Um, before that was The Pain Teens uh, with Daughter of Chaos, and opening that setup was Gingerbread Coffin from Rasputina. One of the features that I wanted to include in this reanimated version of the Spookatorium was to take a moment and spotlight some of the small presses that are releasing the kind of fiction that I enjoy. So, for September 2011, let's start with uh, Grey Friar Press out of England. Recently announced a signed limited edition hardcover of New Tales by Gary McMahon. Uh, it's called It Knows Where You Live. Uh, it's got 15 stories, 14 of which are original to this collection. Uh, the book will be limited to just 100 copies, and the publisher is offering a unique message from the author uh, handwritten in each copy. Additionally, they're going to hold a drawing for a chance to win a framed one-page handwritten story from Gary McMahon, starring the winner of the contest. Uh, for more information on that, you can visit grayfriarpress.com, and if it's not sold out already, it, it will be soon, I'm sure. Uh, next up, uh, Dark Regions Press it continues uh, to release a steady stream of, of new tomes. Uh, some of the recent goodies available for pre-order include uh, Jeffrey Thomas's Return to His Own Special Hell uh, with Beautiful Hell, it's called. It's expected in October. Uh, it's available in a deluxe limited edition and a trade paperback. Uh, titles expected for November include Gathered Dust and Others by Willem Hopfrog Pugmire. Uh, the collection will include 18 tales of Pugmire's unique Lovecraftian reverie and will be available as limited and even more limited hardcovers. Uh, Engines of Sacrifice by James Chambers is another release targeted for November and will include four Lovecraftian novellas, again presented in two limited hardcover versions. Uh, Dark Regions is a very active press and you can learn about other new releases by visiting darkregions.com. Tartarus Press recently announced a new collection from Reggie Oliver called Mrs. Midnight and Other Stories. It contains 13 tales that, quote, underlying all is a deep sense of the spiritual undercurrents just below the surface of everyday existence and the precariousness of normality. And that's from the publisher. Uh, Tartarus production values are always fantastic. It just feels special to read one of their books. Uh, this one is expected at the end of September. Uh, for those unaware, Tartarus has also recently started to produce ebooks, and the titles uh, available thus far include works from Arthur Machen, uh, Sarban, Rosalie Parker, Elaine Fournier, and you can check all of that out and a host of other outstanding titles at tartaruspress.com. Uh, Phantasmagoria, this is exciting, is a new quarterly journal edited by Laird Barron uh, that's due soon uh, in limited print and also as uh, a digital download. The table of contents for the first issue includes uh, Simon Strancis, Joseph Pulver, Genevieve Valentine, Stephen Graham Jones, Anna Tambor, and Scott Nicolay. For more details, you can go to phantasmagoria.co not com co and that's it for now i will uh, try and spotlight a few new releases each episode
The last track you heard was Faith and the Muse with their cover of Dead Can Dance's classic track, Mesmerism. And following that was, or actually preceding that, was Phallus Day with Dead Birds Floating. I haven't made a little uh, bumper intro um, that was quite appropriate for this next story, so let's just get into it. Um, it's too layered and cloaked in mist direction to be able to go into all of the details, as many of them just aren't known. There's a group called UX or UX, uh, which stands for Urban Experiences. Uh, it's an umbrella organization that allegedly encompasses ten smaller groups of urban explorers that operate in Paris. I wasn't able to find information on more than two of the factions, really. Uh, the first, La Mexicaine de la Perforation, <laughs> uh, was was first exposed in 2004 when something that they had secreted in the underground tunnels and ossuary beneath the city was discovered. Uh, the LMDP had built an underground cinema complete with working electricity, phone lines, and a PA system. Theater seating for 20 to 30 people had been carved directly into the stone of the tunnels. In a side room, they'd set up a small eatery. Um, Closed-circuit surveillance cameras were set to trigger audio of barking dogs that helped them secure the installation should anyone get close. Uh, the location was uncovered in a cavern that hadn't been previously mapped by police who routinely patrol the catacombs. How long it had been there before its discovery is not known, though the group claims the location was not unique. Uh, when authorities returned three days later to investigate where the installation was drawing the power from that was that was running all of this, the phone lines, the power lines had been cut, and there was a note that had been left simply saying, do not search. As news got out uh, of the discovery of the LMDP, or more specifically a personality going by the name Lazar Kunstmann, uh, raised their heads and took credit for the cinema. Uh, Kunstmann is a bit of a cipher, and in the little bit I've read is a story unto himself that I'm not going to get into uh, today. Uh, he came to be the public voice of Uiks, and in doing so, likely created more red herrings and snipe hunts than he has given up any real secrets. Uh, Kunstmann states that rather than a secret society, they are, quote, just taking advantage of a hidden alliance, unquote. The group has published a book and do leave avenues for like-minded explorers to uncover their work, but they don't draw attention to themselves, aside from instances like this, I guess, when they, they sort of had to. Two years after the discovery of the cinema, the activities of a different faction of Uix came to light. This group was known as Untergunther, um, and what they did was return the voice to the clock in the Paris Pantheon uh, that had sat silent for 50 years. This, to me, is the really remarkable part of this rat's nest of this story. Untergunther are essentially clandestine preservationists. Uh, the Pantheon's clock was built in 1850, and sometime in the 1960s it had gone silent. In 2005, Untergunther decided it deserved their attention, so for the next year, a group of eight core members came and went from the Pantheon undetected, using copied keys and uh, other means of, of entering the building. Uh, they set up a workshop that included tools, chemicals, and other materials in the dome of the building, and they set to work. In 2006, after their year of work, the group realized it would need to involve the administrators of the Pantheon to, to mount the clock and to make their handiwork known. 
but that meeting didn't go as they would have hoped uh, for reasons based largely on public embarrassment at what had been accomplished under their noses the administration decided that they would not um, cooperate with that uh, disappointed Unter Gunther then elected to take matters into their own hands once again and return to the Pantheon on, on Christmas Eve of that year. They mounted the clock by themselves and for the first time in 50 years the clock began to chime. Uh, their work was precise enough that, that, that it was found to lose only one minute per day. Upon uh, the discovery of this by the administration they brought in a clockmaker to again silence the timepiece basically because of the appearance of things. Uh, so all of that work towards preserving something of historical value was quelled for the pride of a petulant administration. Uh, Untergutter's work is normally far less visible than the Pantheon project. They claim 16 completed jobs and a list of proposed sites that is too long to be accomplished in their lifetime. Other projects are said to have included a 100-year-old government bunker, an air raid shelter dating back to World War I, and a 12th century crypt. Uh, given the nature of the group, how the work might continue in the future uh, for them to, to accomplish more things on that list is, is unclear. I want to thank uh, Oren Gray, who tweeted an article from The Guardian that sent me looking into this. Uh, the information here was taken from The Guardian article, article and a, a long piece from Gizmodo Australia, and then pieces linked from the Unter Gunther website. Uh, links are available in the show notes on the site, and I encourage you to check them out as this really just scratches the surface. It's it's impressive.
Illuminati and a pain to meet on the streets of this basically clean town. Seconds, the horror of Party Beach, followed by Wall of Goat from Goatvark. And the last track you heard there uh, was Creepy People from the God Bullies. The idea that got me most excited about uh, being able to do the show again or reviving the show was the opportunity to focus on uh, some of the things that are going on in the small press, particularly with supernatural horror. Um, there aren't really any shows out there, podcasts that I could find that that spent any real attention on some of these things. And so uh, I decided to uh, give it a try myself and I sent a communication out to a a small handful of writers that I respect and I've been fortunate enough to hear back from a few of them. So going forward, um, each episode what I hope to do is bring you um, a small taste of 
of what these people are adding to the canon of, of weird literature and uh, when possible have them speak to one of their short stories and uh, in other cases it may be that they provide a vignette. Our inaugural guest is someone that I'm very honored and happy to to have appear here. He's someone whose work that I have followed for some time. I got an opportunity to hear him read and meet him at MythosCon 1 that took place in Arizona back in uh, January. And he's always been uh, very gracious and he's, he's among my favorites. Richard Gavin is one of a handful of current Canadian writers infusing the canon of supernatural horror with new and expansive interpretations of the uncanny. Gavin's three short story collections and numerous anthology and magazine appearances have drawn back the curtain on worlds large and small that linger with you. In the Shadow of the Nodding God was the first of his tales that I read. It opens his collection Omens, released in 2007 by Mythos Books, and was really all I needed to read to know that I would be following his work in the future. Since that time, the collection uh, Darkly Splendid Realm was released by Dark Regions Press, and Dark Regions also reissued a definitive edition of his first collection, Charnel Wine, for which I am most grateful because it was out of print and I didn't know that I would ever find a copy. Each of those collections are plump with fascinating tales, but In the Shadow of the Nodding God was has particularly stuck in my craw. Uh, it follows an isolated and unstable machinist who becomes obsessed with a shop that specializes in old newspapers, letters, and photographs. And as his collection of these obscure treasures and snippets of history grow, he creates a scrapbook, several scrapbooks, detailing an alternate reality that extols the black things that insomnia, amphetamines, and anxiety have fleshed him with. On a lonely midnight walk, the reality in those scrapbooks imposes itself on the inhabitable world when a stoic figure from beyond the veil greets our unnamed main character as a historian. Uh, I'll leave the last act alone uh, so as not to ruin it, but the textures of the tale, the perceptions of the main character, and the scrapbooks resonate with me still. It speaks so well to the idea that perception is reality, and even if you feel you are the only inhabitant of that reality, you may well not be. Richard was kind enough to record a few of his thoughts about this piece. We cannot know how horror began, can never gauge its boundaries, nor have we any hope of comprehending why certain individuals seek communion with it. These are the opening lines to my story in the shadow of the nodding god. They're also a fairly sound encapsulation of the tale itself, perhaps even of all my fiction. Although there's a conscious effort on my part to make each new story unique, I find that more often than not these alterations are somewhat decorative. One piece may take place in ancient Greece, the next in a postmodern Canadian suburb, but scrape away setting, regional flares to dialogue, and a far richer and much darker pattern can be seen. An undercurrent, a psychic underworld, if you will. I believe this subconscious, subconscious in the sense that it resides below or behind our reflexive thoughts and impulses, rather than being the area of conscious or apparent physicality and willed action, is a very real aspect to the human condition. It is, to borrow the title of one of my books, The Darkly Splendid Realm. 
This is the boundless horror referenced at the beginning of In the Shadow of the Nodding God. I first wrote this story in 2004 for my friend Paul Kane's Shadow Writers webzine, and it went on to serve as the lead story in my second collection, Omens, which was published by Mythos Books in March of 2007. One of my primary influences, then and now, is Thomas Ligotti, and there are more than a few of Mr. Ligotti's fingerprints on this tale. I'm a writer who wears his influences on his sleeve, because I don't believe that any author works in a vacuum. And in my more romantic moments, I actually regard horror writers, as opposed to those writers who just occasionally write horror stories along with a variety of other fictions, to be a kind of tribe, a collective of outsiders who seem, from birth seemingly, to only be able to express their impressions of the world as grotesque exaggerations, as, as weird tales, as works of horror. The narrator in Nodding God is very much one of these outsiders, perhaps one of the most overt ones I have created. He doesn't glimpse his internal underworld, his night mind, and then recoil to the safety of a therapist's couch or the reassuring embrace of lovers or friends. No, he dives headlong into his obsessions until he finds what might be one of magic's great secrets, that when one dives deeply enough into oneself, doorways in the physical world tend to open up. Actual change begins to occur. There's a grim and kind of gleeful freedom to this. And one of the recurrent concepts, one that rears its head time and again in my work, is that of what might be called a dark liberation. A strange type of gnosis or enlightenment that blossoms after the character has found that the horror within the story is not necessarily reaching out to rend him or her, but maybe, in fact, extending a kind of hand of fellowship. A, a kind of liberation is there. It's rarely pleasant, but I think it might be the only salvation left for some of my characters. They find a home in horror, just as I did. You can find out more about Richard's work at his website, which is richardgavin.net. Uh, as I mentioned before, he's got books available from Dark Regions Press and Mythos Books. I'll have links for those places in the show notes. And now I'm uh, humbled to present a original vignette from Richard Gavin called Notes on the Aztec Death Whistle. Notes on the Aztec Death Whistle by Richard Gavin The Aztecs developed their notorious death whistles several centuries before Christianity stained history's leaves. The process of their creation would commence with the selection of fine, firm bones, once so heavy with human meat, but since picked clean. The bones would be hammered into nuggets, the nuggets mortared into fine dust. This dust would then be swirled into river water and earth. With this moribund clay, Aztec artisans would knead skull-shaped simulacrum, and from these shriek-wide mouths, the appropriate noise would escape. Once purified and firmed by fire, the whistles were then decorated with suitably grotesque adornments, details brushed on with specially prepared dyes made from berries and dung. On ceremonious occasions, 
rites whose nature and purpose have been lost to modern humankind, these whistles would be blown. Their sound, it is rumored, is that of the damned. The damned who utilize the whistles as their mouthpiece, a terrestrial tool to lend voice to their silent, unseen, unending anguish. Dormant forces are shocked to wakefulness by this fingernails-on-tin shriek. Gathered dust is stirred. Recessive forces roused. McTechassiwattle herself may have smiled. Until this century, when a team of British archaeologists accidentally disinterred one from its thonic tomb ruin, these whistles were believed to be the stuff of myth. Human nature being what it is, this lone specimen was quickly molded and replicated for junk shops worldwide. But the original whistle remained in the British Museum of Antiquities. Until last week, of course, when you stole it and smuggled it here, to your private bungalow on the shore. You didn't think anyone or anything would hear when you stood on your deck and blew into the ancient slit and unleashed the unworldly sign. It ripped across the snowy, abandoned shore. It stabbed through your near-empty bungalow as well. The bungalow vacant, save for me. I want to thank you for leaving behind all these notes about the death whistle. They were a great aid in explaining just what I am, and why I'd felt as though I'd just been awakened from one dream world and entered another. All good dreams are quests, and this one involved my recovering an artifact that is sacred to my kind. I hope your research notes also helped you understand the situation, though judging by the look on your face when I came creeping down from your attic, I doubt you really comprehended what I was. I hope you're able to hear me as I speak these words. I hope that you are able to appreciate what that whistle did to me and what it made me do to you.
That was Abandoner collaborating with Angel of Decay. The track is called The Aether Was Accessed. If you have any thoughts about the show, comments, opinions about anything that you heard, uh, please feel free to get in touch. You can leave a comment on the website, which is spookatorium.org. I'm also available on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is at spookatorium. Uh, And you can send an email, which is spookatorium.org at gmail.com if you are an artist whose music was played on the show and you don't want your music to be played on the show uh, let me know and I can remove that aside from that I just want to say thanks for checking the show out Uh, it's been three years since I've done one of these and I'm sure they'll improve a little bit as I get more comfortable again but I really want to say thank you to Richard for taking part in this And uh, I hope you enjoyed the other elements of the show. And um, we're going to bring it home with Thrash Me by Malaria.